This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Mitch LaFawn. Welcome to this episode of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Joining me on the phone, it is... Well, from Monty Python, a comedian John Cleese. He will be at the Win Las Vegas Hotel on November 1st and 2nd, which is why we're on the phone discussing that. He will also be in my part of the world, in Montreal, later in November as well. But uh, the Win uh, Las Vegas, head over to winwynlasvegas.com to talk about that. And uh, during our conversation, we talk about Beatles guitarist George Harrison. Of course, uh, George Harrison had a, a great part in the uh, success of Monty Python, and we will uh, talk about that. And you can also go look that up on uh, Google or YouTube or whatever, and you can find out what's going on there. And then on the other side, and I haven't done this in a while, but a, uh, a double episode, I'm going to have current Paul McCartney guitarist Brian Ray. He has been with Paul since uh, early 2000s, so going on almost 20 years with Paul McCartney, so... Our first guest talks about being a, uh, or talks about a guitarist who's played with Paul McCartney, and our second guest, uh, Brian Ray, is a guitarist who plays with Paul McCartney, and he has a new single out called "A Pirate Radio." Do head over to YouTube and check out Brian Ray Pirate Radio. It's a great song, great song, and uh, Brian's has uh, been doing this for the last few years, putting out singles here and there whenever the uh, the inspiration or the moment uh, strikes. Just before we uh, we get over to uh, John, I just want to say, uh, by the way, th th this is why I went independent. It is so incredibly nice to have the opportunity and the ability to put on guests that I just want to talk to because I find them interesting, compelling, etc. And, you know, when somebody phones you and says, do you want to talk to comedy legend John Cleese? You don't go, well, you know, the format of the show is not really necessary. You go, yes, tell me when. And so uh, I will give you a John Cleese in a minute. And, of course, uh, win, W-Y-N-N, LasVegas.com, on November 1st and 2nd, 2019. He will be at Théâtre Saint-Denis in Montreal. Hopefully I will get to see that show. And, uh, well, as they say, and now for something completely different, here is... John Cleese. We are speaking with uh, comedy icon, author, and of course, actor John Cleese. He will be making his uh, Win Las Vegas debut November 1st and 2nd. Uh, tickets on sale now. And uh, John, I'm actually uh, in Montreal. So as we say in Montreal, bonjour. How are you? Oh, well, I'm in Vienna. So we should be chatting in German with the Viennese. Uh, actually, I'm fine. I, I'm in a city I absolutely adore. Um, that was Vienna. It's one of the most beautiful cities and recently voted by some smart business magazine, the number one city in the world to live in. Uh, beautiful buildings, nice people, slightly low-key, all with a sense of humor, and not a lot of prancing around showing off, just people living satisfactory and humorous lives. A very, very good place to be, a lovely spirit. And Montreal, of course, I adore. Food there's pretty good, too. And uh, you'll be here uh, later in November. But let's, let's talk about this, this Win Las Vegas performance, because you are doing an evening with John Cleese. So the fans that are going to come out to see this, what can they expect? Well, I'm still in the process of putting a show together. 
Um, you see, I've done two shows here for Indiana. I have a massive amount of material. I could probably do six hours without too much trouble. So I have to find something that's about an hour and 25 that's going to work in Las Vegas. And I need to get a sense of the audience. So I'm actually asking people for advice. For example, some of the Monty Python stuff is very, very silly. And almost everybody enjoys that. But some of the Python stuff is a bit naughty, a bit black humor, you know. And I want to know, well, I don't want to upset the audience. That tends to go better in big, very sophisticated cities. It doesn't go quite so well if I go to somewhere like El Paso. So bearing in mind that Phantom of the Opera was renamed Phantom because they felt if they called it anything to do with opera, the audience in Las Vegas would stay away. I have to find out a little bit more of what's likely to go down with that the particular audience that I'll be um, playing to because the audience that I play to, if I go to places like, uh, you know, Washington or Berlin, these kind of places, then they are mad Python fans. And when I go out, I know that I can make Python references and they'll get everything I'm talking about. But I'm not sure if that would be true with the audience I'll get in Las Vegas. What do you think? Well, I'm not really sure, but I'm, I'm going to ask you this because I've noticed in Las Vegas it's called an evening with. Uh, when you're in Montreal, it's called John Cleese, Why There Is No Hope. And while you were in the UK, it was called John Cleese, The Last Time to See Me Before I Die. Um, is there a difference in all these shows, or is it just part of the joke that from city to city... Yes, they're all different, but the, the, the title doesn't give much away. Very frequently, and it amuses me this, because it's one of the ironies of life -ish. The moment that you agree to do a show, somebody rings you up and says, well, what's the title? And you want to say, well, I've only just agreed to do the show. <laughs> so I haven't figured out what I'm doing yet. Well, we've got to have a title because of the advertising. And also, the theater puts out a brochure in two weeks' time. So we have to have a title. So sometimes I just make up a completely silly title. I say, oh, let's call it John Cleese. He's at it again. Another occasion, I said, oh, call it Seven Ways to Skin an Ocelot. Uh, and, of course, it doesn't matter at all. That's what it's called, and then it has nothing to do with the content. So um, I'm going to be figuring out what's the best stuff for the audience, but I'm told that they will be vaguely interested in how I started all this, what it was like growing up in England during the war and remembering the Germans bombing and all that kind of stuff. So I'll do a little bit of that, then I'll talk about fun of the British educational system, which is not difficult. And then the fact that I was planning to be a lawyer and studied law at Cambridge, and then all of a sudden finished up in show business because I did a show there with a little club that did review, and they always did a show in Cambridge uh, in the uh, summer of the year in question because people were having their parents come into Cambridge because they were getting their degrees. And at this particular year, the show was so good that it finished up in London and we all finished up in showbiz. Just instead of being in serious professions like the law or advertising or, you know, jobs like that. Now, we've got exactly 15, so we're down to our last sort of seven, so I'll, I'll throw some rapid questions at you, but... Uh... You've been working with a, a producer called Alan Menken on a Faulty Towers 
musical, or so, so at least I'm being told. First of all, is that true? And what would a Faulty Towers musical uh, be, or what's the hope for it to be? I, for reasons I could explain to you, I'd rather not talk about that at the moment. There's a lot of uncertainty about it. So my apologies. So let me move on quickly then to uh, the Monty Python life of Brian and the implication, or not the implication, but the uh, how George Harrison was involved in that and how important was George Harrison in saving the movie, but then also, I guess, saving sort of the Monty Python brand because had that he movie. Was, Go ahead. Well, he was a, he was a, a good friend of, uh, of Eric Idols, and uh, when we were unable to get any anybody to give us $3 million to make life of Brian, not a lot of money, $3 million, even in 1978 or whenever it was, uh, we gave up. We thought we were never going to make the film. And then Eric happened to give the script to George and said, why don't you read this? And he did it without any ulterior motive. And the next thing was George rang up and said, I'll put up the money for it. And, and Eric said, what are you talking about? And George said, I, I read it. I, I laughed so much I fell out of my bed. He said, I want to put the money up. But eventually, he actually mortgaged his house in order to get enough money for us to make it. If it wasn't for dear old uh, George Harrison, we call him St. George in Python, um, the film wouldn't exist. It's extraordinary act of generosity. But what we found throughout our careers is that it was the other creative people who saw that we were doing something interesting. And it was the executives who, by and large, Missed it every time. October 5th, 1969, so just over 50 years ago, of course, Monty Python's Flying Circus was first transmitted or first aired. Uh, talk to me about that night, but also, what was it about uh, Monty Python that 50 years later allows you to go play the Win Las Vegas, allows you to come to Montreal, allows you to do these tours? Why do you think it struck a nerve with the public? I think it was because it was something completely unfamiliar to them. It stood out from everything else. And there were some people who were not particularly amused by the other comedy that was on offer. And then they suddenly discovered us. And it was like, uh, they, they said this to them. This is not me making it up. This is what they say. It was like discovering a new world. It was like discovering a part of themselves that they didn't know existed because they didn't know this kind of humor existed. And so when they responded so positively to it, it was almost a surprise to them. But it was something very precious because it was something that was not a part of their normal lives. And I think they carry that affection with me. And I now very touched a great deal at the time because when I meet people from the audience afterwards, uh, men of 70 years of age say, thank you for making me laugh for the last 50 years. And uh, I'm not kidding you, there's a tear in their eye. And that is very touching. It means we touch people in a way that no one else did. Yeah, you, you really did. And I'm going to ask you sort of the obvious question, but it's less obvious to answer is, how do you think sort of comedy has changed over the years? I look back to the Richard Pryors and to the, the Monty Pythons and, and to... Uh, George uh, Carlin, and, and there seems to have been a cleverness to what was going on. And I look at some of the comedians today, and I think they sort of go for the easy joke or the easy setup. And, and I know that's that's overgeneralizing, but 
How do you sort of see the progression well, of... I tried to sell, I tried to sell a, a series, uh, an idea for a series to Netflix, and they said they passed. They didn't even ring my agent or send an email. And then a little time later, I thought one of the, um, one of the shows that they had commissioned, and in it, a very likable uh, American comedian, a woman... I uh, was doing a routine about how she was so fat that she couldn't find her own pussy. And I thought to myself, well, I wish I'd known that was the sort of material they were after, but it's not the sort of material I've done in the past. So I think it's changed because uh, stand-up, and there's a great deal of really good stand-up comedian, seems to have become very much to do with just small private things that happened in our own lives. And a lot of it is sexual and lavatorial. And I don't think many people now are so good as they were 30, 40 years ago constructing full-length scripts for either plays or, or films, you know. But I think that the Americans are extremely good at uh, at sitcoms. I mean, Friends, Cheers, things like that are absolutely top class. But I haven't seen a really clever, funny film for about 10 years. And I would agree with you. And I see we're down to our last minute. So just real quick, uh, your your movie career, what was that like moving into uh, doing movies away from Monty Poth and Like a Fish Called Wanda, which, by the way, one of the greatest movies I've seen, uh, talk to me about making that switch oh, and becoming a full-time a fish called Wanda. That is so great. I love that film. <laughs> well, I did, I'd done a few movies before Python did of, movies. Of I course. used to do the odd day or two on a small British movie. So there was nothing very different about it except that it takes a little time when you come on to a new movie to sort of pick up the tone of it is everyone else has been working on it for a few days or a few weeks, and they know the style of it. So you have to ask a lot of questions at the start to find out if you're coming in with the right style, if you're fitting into something that's already been established. Thank you. Thank you, uh, John. Absolute pleasure. And uh, very Merci beaucoup. Merci beaucoup, as we say. Cheers. Bye-bye. Now back to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFond. Big thank you to legendary comedian John Cleese. And that, to me, was fun. And that is why I do this show, because I like to have fun. It's fun to talk about Kiss. It's fun to talk about Van Halen. It's fun to talk about Metallica and Thunder. And it's also fun to talk to our comedians. Uh, They are just great. And... Listen, I, I don't do a lot of that, but once in a while, y- you have to let me have the ability to just go a little bit left and a little bit right of the rock thing. Um, you know, not every not every week, because then it's not a rock show, but once every blue moon, just give me the John Cleeses of the world, the Bananaramas, and some of the other stuff that I do that's a little bit uh, out in left field. Anyway, uh, with that, uh, let us get over to Paul McCartney, guitarist. Brian Ray, his new single is called Pirate Radio. Do check that out on brianray.com and also uh, YouTube and everywhere else. And, uh, well, you know what? Let us not give you a big speech. Without further ado, here is the one, the only, guitarist for Paul McCartney, 
Brian Ray. We are speaking with guitarist Brian Ray. The new single is Pirate Radio. And I have to say, um, is Diddy a good work? That's a great Diddy. It's a, it's a great song. I've been listening to it. It really is a fun rock song. So uh, bonjour, as we say in Montreal. Brian, uh, how are you? Bonjour, Mitch. How you doing, man? Good. Pleasure to talk to you again. And, and this song, uh, Pirate Radio, is is just a fun, fun rock song. So I'm going to tell folks, you can head over to brianray.com, and it's just very simple, brian and ray, r-a-y.com. All the singles are listed there. And uh, talk to me about this this way that you've been doing things. So the last time we spoke, you had put out Tears of a Clown with uh, featuring Smokey Robinson and One Heartbeat. And before that, you had done Here For You and Cinnamon Girl and so on and so forth. You even did a, a single called, um, uh, what was that called? The Les Paul Tribute with Rick Nielsen and Orianti and so on. Talk to me about doing these things. Yeah, sort of, yeah. That's a great one. And yeah, or- that was Go ahead. a lot of fun. That was a lot of fun. And it, yeah, that's available over at the site right now, too, as a bonus track. Yeah, and, and Orianti, man, she is the real, I mean, Rick Nielsen's the real deal, and you're the real deal, but Orianti, man, she's she's just fantastic, and so nice to talk to. Yeah. Such a sweetheart, but... Yeah, uh, she's she's a sweetheart and a shredder, no doubt about it. So, but talk to me about this, because you did, um, you know, you do the stuff with the Bayonets, you did Mondo Magneto back in 2006, I guess it was, uh, but then, since then, it seems to me that we're getting a lot of singles, and that seems to be a very smart approach, one song at a time. Uh, talk to me about this approach of sort of one song at a time and just getting something out. You know, thanks, man. Yeah, the, the same way I approached uh, the Bayonets releases at first was sort of like this, like release a single every sort of eight weeks. That was the idea with the Bayonets. And and the idea behind that is, is that these days everyone's busy doing a million things and they've got a lot of ways of being entertained. And I don't think that many people want to listen to music the way we used to listen to music, i.e. listening to a whole record front to back or half of a record. We can digest a bit at a time, and that's great. And I think that there are so many releases now as a result of do-it-yourself record uh, companies that I kind of figure that you can get as much attention for one single release almost as much as you do over an album release. Attention is attention. Getting someone's time is the thing, you know, and asking for four minutes is an easier ask than asking for 40 minutes. And so for a few reasons, I just think it's a cooler way to go if you just keep feeding your your fan base and your your listeners with, uh, with new material every once in a while instead of once every four years. You know? I agree. And there's a guitarist out there named John Five, which you, you must be aware of. He did something that oh, was sure. really... Yeah, you know, John. He, he did something very cool. He was doing one sort of music video a month, so like on March 1st, on April 1st. On, and then when he got to the end of 10, he goes, okay, now you get the album. And I thought that that sort of utilization of YouTube and the visuals and the song which is very brilliant because every sort of first of the month you went, ah, there's a new John five song and video. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, that's a brilliant way to go. I'm sure that was a successful setup and release for him to sort of uh, keep feeding your audience, uh, you know, a little bit at a time. That's the idea here 
you know, at the end of our, uh, let's say, 12 songs, when we when we get to 10, we'll we might just do an album, but we'll see what happens. Yeah. And and of course, we'll mention to fans that listening that Brian has been with Sir Paul McCartney since 2002. Um, and just before you called, uh, Bob Kulik, who has played with Meatloaf and Kiss and Wasp, and called me, and I said, I'm going to be talking to Brian. And he went, oh, I love Brian. He's, uh, he's amazing. And he asked me a question. That I'm gonna, right? I'm gonna, he asked me a question. He says, Mitch, you have to ask him, because I've been a big Beatles fan. You have to ask him this. He said, what tuning are you using with Paul McCartney? He said, is it A440? Is it something? So for, for a little bit here, let, let's get into the technophile version of this. But what are the tunings you're using with Paul McCartney these days? I'm in standard tuning, and we are A440. So, uh, yeah. I mean, so many of the Beatles tracks were what they called at the time, very sped. They would use this one adjustment on the tape recording unit called very speed, uh, with which they could either slow the track up or, or speed it up, you know, slow the track down or speed it up, uh, according to how far you would twist the, this knob to the right or the left. And, uh, when they felt like a song was just a little bit slower than they wanted it, then they would just twist that knob to the right. And it's that simple. So that's why so many people think, well, the Beatles didn't really, uh, pay attention to tuning, but they did. they, they uh, tuned, I think, pretty much by ear to pianos and to whatever was available, organs or whatever else was on the track. But, uh, yeah, those songs were all recorded in tune. They just um, were changed during the mix and master process. You see? So there you go. So I will pass that on to it to Bob. So let me ask you about this. Uh, earlier this year, the Brian Ray 62 SD Jr., model has you know your signature model with gibson has been released uh, talk to me about that signature model and talk to me about the process because uh, you know some artists they get in there they get the specs and they they start twiddling the knobs and they really are involved and others they go hey just put my name on and sell whatever you want so talk to me about this guitar and how involved are you in the specs and making it and making sure that it represents who brian ray is yeah, well, you know, I, it's crazy luck. This is the second one that I've done with Gibson. They approached me both times uh, to ask if I had any good ideas. Yeah, the first one was called the BR63SG, uh, and this is the BR62SG Jr. And in both cases, uh, they were so good to work with. A guy named Philip Wharton, that's W-H-O-R-T-O-N for those playing along at home at Gibson Custom Shop in Nashville was my uh, contact and my conduit uh, to the Gibson Custom Shop factory. And we spent hours on the phone with both guitars, with each guitar, going over the specs uh, little bit by little bit, you know, like just working away at chipping away at it until we came up with our first prototype. And uh, they were very patient and really lovely to work with. They had great ideas, and it was a real collaboration. Um, most of the ideas with the in with respect to the the visual uh, appeal of the guitar uh, comes from me, and implementing it is up to them. 
So, and there's so many little details with the neck, the bridge, the pickup, the electronics, and all of all of the sort of what we call nerdy uh, aspects that I was very, very uh, uh, hands-on with designing with them. And it was just a fabulous process. I see. And it's a great looking guitar. Uh, absolutely great. So head over to Gibson.com and go find the Brian Ray. There's two models, as he said. Check those out. Uh, I follow you on Twitter, right? And yep. I, I'm interested in this. And, I, and I'm going to ask you a question, and, I, and, I, and I, I, I am passing no judgments. I'm just asking the question. But uh, from time to time, there is political commentary. And I'm just wondering, from an artist's perspective, how is it, how important is it for an artist to be involved and to make political commentary? But also on the flip side, how dangerous is it to potentially alienate a fan if they don't agree with what you're... And I'm not going to say who you're doing, but uh, I'm just curious about the... Is it something you think about and go, okay, I've got to be careful, or is it more important to just sort of speak from your heart and go, this is what I feel, and that's it? Well, it, it's it's the, the second of the two there, of, of the two choices, Mitch. I feel um, really sort of passionate about my country and very passionate about... Uh, the decisions that go on uh, on our behalf. And uh, we have a democracy and some, some of the things that are enshrined in our democracy are the freedom to say what you want to say about that. And that's unlike other places, uh, other countries where that isn't allowed. Um, And it's also generational for me. I was raised during the 60s when artists always spoke out and they used their cachet. They used their currency uh, as as uh, as currency to talk about issues that mattered to them, that were dear to their hearts, that they were passionate about and that they were concerned about or uh, in favor of. Um, So. I, I take a cue from those guys, you know, and uh, the, the men and women who uh, were unafraid to speak their minds and allow that to be a part of who they were as artists. Now, these days, I understand it's a do-it-yourself world in the in the business uh, of selling CDs and records and, uh, oh, you know, downloads and streams. That That's um, it's a do-it-yourself world. And people are less willing to jeopardize uh, the, the the small share of an audience that they can capture if they're lucky. So I understand I don't pass judgment on those that don't do it, but I'm very grateful for those who do speak their minds. And I would be one of those people. I don't care at all about uh, what could happen or who might not buy my single. It's like you know, I make music because I love music and, uh, and I also love my country and I care about it. It's an important thing for me to be able to express how I feel about my country. Yeah. And see, and, and I agree with that. And, and I will say that, you know, on Twitter and stuff, I have, you know, a certain profile myself, you know, 14,000 followers, which is not nothing, but it's not a million. We get it. But I do my best to stay completely apolitical, a religious. Uh, just because I just don't think I can afford uh, 
to alien. So it, it's just interesting to to have both sort of perspectives. Uh, but one thing we saw on the Twitter, which is Brian Ray Guitar at Brian Ray Guitar, is recently you you posted this incredible nice uh, memory of the Cars Rico Kasich. Uh, it's very touching. Um, Aww. T- it, it really was. Uh, in fact, hold on, I have it in front of me. Um, it says, uh, you wrote, Rick Ocasek, one of the most gifted songwriter-producers of the post-punk era, has passed. He was so kind, and his music was a gift to us all. Uh, thank you for the hooks and the music. Um, just talk to me a little bit about Rick, and because, you know, as we are all getting older, uh, some of our heroes die and, and are passing away. And, you know, when I was looking at my mom back in the day, and Frank Sinatra passed, and Elvis passed, and I didn't get it, you know? I, I didn't understand yeah. how that was a void in somebody's life. And then you see Rick pass and Ben or uh, Benjamin Orr and, and some of these other, and you go, what do you mean I'll never have, what do you mean there'll be no more David Bowie? What do you mean? And I get it yeah. now. Um, talk to me a little bit about that and, and Rick and what he meant to you. Well, I'll start with talking about Rick. I mean, that guy was so gentle and so kind. Uh, I got to meet him briefly uh, one day at SIR uh, rehearsal studios, um, and I just uh, had a you know a brief you know three minute conversation with him, in which I touched base with my um, adoration of his great songwriting and production skills, and his uh, incredible knack for writing and uh, recording hooks that you just can't get out of your mind. And for those who don't know what we mean when we say hooks, that's that one little bit of each song that you've always loved, that you always can't wait for it to come up and you sing along or play along. It could be a drum lick. It could be a guitar lick. It could be a background vocal passage, a lyric. It could be anything. Um, And uh, he was very gifted at constructing hooks. So I told him all those things and also touched base on on my buddy, uh, Scott Schreiner, who's been playing with Weezer for longer than I've been with Paul. Well, of course, Weezer did, uh, I think, three albums with Rick Ocasek, uh, starting with and including their biggest album, their first, um, I wouldn't say their biggest, their breakthrough album. And so I just wanted to say, uh, Scott speaks fondly of you and uh, he really, really enjoys uh, working with you and he said something very kind about Scott in return. And it was just a, a wonderful moment. Um, now to the bigger question of like, you know, this is happening quite a lot. I mean, Bowie, Prince, you know, Scott Weiland, uh, all these greats going, Rick Ocasek, Ben Orr, all, all these greats, you know, passing, you know, it, it it is an age thing. And, we are fortunate. I am fortunate enough to have been born, as I said, in the mid fifties. Yes, I am that old. I am 64 years old, but uh, for those counting along, um, and <clears throat> I'm part of, uh, what we call the baby boom generation, that post-war population bubble that just came out of nowhere after the optimism of, uh, you know, having won a war and defeating Nazism and, um, and, uh, you know, all of these people just started have, having two to four children in their new brand new suburban homes and their two cars. And, uh, you know, 
what happened was so many kids born of that generation were also informed by that optimism and that sort of sense of accomplishment that World War II bestowed on all of us. And with that optimism, they started to get into the arts like music. Rock and roll was born, you know, just a few scant years after World War II. And it was a perfect release and a perfect getaway for people who had been depressed for years. Um, And uh, so, you know, with that population growth comes a, a huge section of the population are artists. And here we are. And now they're of that age. And those that are five, 10 years older than I are, you know, unfortunately, um, you know, going and leaving us and some way too soon. I mean, Tom Petty should not have left this. Prince shouldn't. These guys, you know, they're they're still young. They've got a lot more music left in them and some were extenuating circumstances. But that's it's just I'm I'm afraid to tell you that we're going to be hearing more of that just because it's a numbers game. There were so many artists in the in the in the baby boom generation. And that generation is aging uh, quickly. So that's what we got, you know, make the uh, best of it, make some hot music and make some people smile, you know. Yeah. And 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 also Whitney Houston, which we we, we failed to mention, she way too young. I mean, God, just way too young. Um, I mean, way too young. And Etta James, who, of course, wasn't quite so young, but I wish she'd stayed around for another 10 years. I sure enjoyed love loving her and working with her and knowing her for as long as I did. And, you know, these people, like I said about Rick, they gave us gifts and those gifts last forever. Music is here forever. You can always find those songs and they sound just as fresh as the day they were released. They really do. And, and of course, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but you sort of got your, your, your start or your big break with Etta James, right? She, she, you were introduced to her and then you spent, uh, a little more than a decade being her musical director and guitarist. Uh, talk to me about that and how important was she for where you are today? Yeah, I mean, I was really lucky, Mitch. I mean, I'm a with a little long-haired, skinny white kid from Glendale and ended up with one of the world's m- most beloved uh, rhythm and blues and blues uh, singers, Etta James. And she plucked me up right out of high school. I was introduced to her by a, a really dear friend of mine, a guy named Phil Kaufman, who was road managing Etta James at the time and also Emmy Lou Harris and, and had just, uh, you know, had to let go of his best friend, Graham Parsons. And uh, Phil's story around Graham's passing is quite interesting, but I won't bore you with that now. But, um, you know, Phil asked me if I was available after introducing me to Etta a couple months later, if I would be available to come to a rehearsal of hers because the guitar player couldn't make it, her guitar player. And I said, hell yeah. And I got in the back of his equipment van and just the two of us went up there and I kind of sheepishly, you know, plugged in and played along with these really great older musicians. And at the end of rehearsal, it went fine. It was really fun. And at the end of the rehearsal, she, uh, she said to Phil, I like that little white kid. And then uh, just uh, asked me if I would play Long Beach the next night. And of course, I was super excited. And well, long story short, that turned into 15 years as her musical director and guitar player and another 20, 
five years as as dear friend and also sometimes collaborated on recording. She sang on uh, a song called Soft Machine from my first album, Mondo Magneto, that you mentioned. And uh, boy, it was just so fun to to work with her. She was just an exciting, lovely performer. And uh, everyone in the audience felt special when they were at one of her shows. Oh, she she was absolutely terrific. Um, I'm going to ask you a couple more questions. I'm going to go with, since I'm in Montreal and we have this French thing, we are very familiar and acquainted with Mylène Farmer and Johnny Halliday. Um, talk to me about touring with them and working with them. And as a musician, first of all, you know, do you speak French? Do you, and, and if not, how do you sort of adjust when the lyrics are coming out in French? Is music just music or, or does the language sort of affect how? And I know it might not be the, the, the greatest question, but you know what I'm trying to say? Like, is it do you just get up there and play guitar or do you have to get into a whole new sort of mental stake on, OK, it's different cues. It's a different like, do you know what I mean? It's actually a great question, Mitch. Um, you know, if if I if I understand your question right, you're asking, do, do you approach uh, music uh, when it's being sung in a different language than you usually would what you're raised with? And Correct. The answer is yes, because um, you you approach it differently. I, I, I think of every instrument in a band as being an emotional kind of emotional fashion or clothing that's that the singer is wearing and you don't want to be wearing like, uh, you know, red bell bottoms if you're going to a formal event. So you want to know what is the deal with this song? What are you saying? No, I don't speak French fluently. I have a little bit of restaurant French and that's about it. But um, so I would ask Milan or, or the musical director, Yvonne Kassar, um, what is this song saying? Is is this what's my come from? Because you, you're kind of like an actor in a band, the way I look at it. And uh, you don't want to, you know, wear the red bell bottoms at the formal dance. So, um, you know, I uh, would always ask about everyone. Is this sad? Is this longing? Is this lust? Is this, you know, uh, happiness? Is this anger? What, what's going on here? So I would know how to portray uh, the guitar parts that I was to play. And it was just a, a great time in our lives. And Abe was the drummer on uh, both uh, Milan Farmer and uh, Jody Halliday, you know, and uh, so that's where Abe and I, Abe Laboreal Jr., for those of you who don't know. Yes, one uh, of the greatest drummers out there. Oh, terrific. No doubt about it. Yeah. Oh, and not uh, just a drummer, he's also a, a great musician, a brilliant person. Um, anyway, yes. that's where we first met and uh, we bonded oh, with those gigs and had just the greatest time. Uh, and that's you know, what is that? 23 years ago now, um, quite a while ago. <laughs> anyway, uh, I just look at all of that time with those French artists as being among the best because we were playing stadiums and high production shows and arenas and stadiums all over French speaking, uh, uh, Europe and, uh, and beyond. Like we came to Montreal, as you know, you know, and, uh, yeah, man, what a great time. I, I'm I'm sad to uh, to say Johnny Halliday is no longer with us, of course, now, as you know. But uh, but um, boy, he was a, a fun guy. He, really he enjoyed was that. Absolutely great. I mean, in fact, here, I'm just going to throw a random question. And speaking of Johnny, because he did a lot of work with Mick Jones, a foreigner, 
When you yeah. were, did you ever get to meet or work with Mick as part of that Johnny Holiday thing? Or I mean, I know that he worked with him, like you know, in the seventies and eighties. But did he ever come around? Did you did you say hello to Mick? Was he talked I, about? I never met him with uh, with Johnny, but I met him once several years ago, uh, but just very briefly. Yeah, Johnny had some great guitar players coming and going, and I'm just happy and proud to have been one of his uh, guitar players. And uh, he was a real rocker. You know, oh. he he really wanted to be, you know, the face of rock and roll, and he was, you know, and they, they loved him, and they loved to make fun of him, and they adored him. But when Johnny passed, as you know, probably, the streets of Paris were lined with over, I think, two million people came out to pay respects, lining the Champs-Élysées all the way down to Place Concorde uh, or Place Madeleine, where he was put to rest. And, um, man, it was really something to see. I, I saw the whole thing on YouTube. It was six hours long, this drive from his house down to uh, Place Madeleine, where... Uh, the the final services were held. What oh, a yeah. what a thing! All I those know. people coming out. Well, he yeah. was the French Elvis, right? I mean, he really was. Yeah, he, he was a whole. He was more than just an artist. He he was the, the face of uh, modern French rebellion. You know, and French are nothing without rebellion, right? So he became the face of of a spirit uh, that the the French have had inside them forever. You know. Yeah, and 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 it's by the way, it's also amazing. I've always found this amazing with music that there are some artists that are just so big and yet also so regional. You look at Status Quo in in the UK, huge in the UK, fifty year anniversary, probably would have a hard time getting a gig in the US. And you look over here, like a, an Ario Speedwagon or a Night Ranger, you send him over to France, nobody knows. And, and, and same with John. It's just, it's, it's amazing how sometimes it's just very regional, but he was so good. Um, and I, I will finish with this today. You have played with, uh, the likes of Johnny and Paul and stuff and Etta. You've also done more contemporary artists like Shakira and uh, Kelly Clarkson, but I'm going to finish with Paul, Sir Paul McCartney. One of your duties in there is to switch between guitar and bass. Talk to me about that. And, is it just strapping on another instrument and off you go? Or is there a certain challenge with that? And, you know, how important was it for Paul to say, hey, I need a guy who can do it all? Well, I mean, I was just, again, so fortunate to be called on to, uh, you know, to help uh, in this band with Paul um, and to be called on to do something so interesting as to play lead rhythm, acoustic guitar, and bass guitar, and sing. Um, but I think the job description, as it was put to me uh, before I got it, was uh, he's looking for a guitar player who plays some bass, rather than he's looking for a bass player who plays some guitar. So I, I, I think, you know, your, your question, again, is interesting because People may not understand that although the bass and the guitar do have four strings with the same tuning relationship, uh, the guitar to the bass, um, the bass, of course, is lower, but it's the same relationship. So most guitar players could just put on a bass and kind of find their way uh, fairly easily. But it's a completely different headspace. 
to be a bass player, it's a state of mind. That's the part that was trickier for me. That's the part that I had to sort of get better at as I went along. And I'm just so fortunate that Paul was, uh, you know, tolerant and patient enough to, as I got better at it. Um, but, you know, I mean, it's such a fun band and he's such a, an inspiring figure in every possible way. Talk about hooks, talk about songwriting, talk about lyrics and melody and production and, and vocals from, you know, the insanity of a little Richard kind of shout down to the tenderest guy you've ever heard on a song like yesterday, you know, it's all in one man and it's more talent than any other single person. I think in any arts ever in history. And that's the first time I've ever said that, but now I just rattling all those, all those aspects of Paul McCartney, rattling them off in succession. It can't lead you to any other conclusion. He's got more talent in one, all in one man. He's got more of it than anyone else ever. That's, I'm going to stand by that. Well, uh, and I agree. And, and, and you're right about the headspace because, you know, a guitarist, especially a lead guitarist, it's about being sort of out front and, 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 and leading the charge in a way. But a, a drummer and a bassist is always about sort of sitting back and just holding the bottom. And it's not, for most bands, it's not about being the star. I mean, it's very rarely that you have a lead bassist, right? I mean, it's, it's usually the bass. And and you yeah. got to sort of go from I have to be in the guy in the shadows and and a guitarist is I have to be the guy in the spotlight and, and it it really is a different sort of approach to perform I, for me that's how I sort of see it but uh, there you go yeah no you're you're totally right about that and uh, I mean we we do have uh, we we have Getty and we had Jack Bruce so we we've had some and uh, John Antwistle some very fiery sort of almost lead bassists, uh, Jekyll Pastorius, so many that were great. Well, Paul might be the most um, imitated and the most important bassist uh, in the history of popular music because he's the guy who really invented uh, the melodic style that he's known for. That, that's him, you know. He'll say he got that from James Jamerson, but no, it's a completely different thing. Paul is singular, and it's generous of him to say James Jameson from Motown, of course, uh, but it's Paul. And nobody nobody does it better. So, you know, what can you say? No, I agree. And uh, what we can say, though, is uh, head over to brianray.com. You will find the new single, Pirate Radio, and you will find everything else uh, here for you. Christmas time is cruel, crash, boom, bang, etc., etc., etc. Brian, as we say in Montréal... Merci beaucoup. Thank you so much. Always a pleasure to talk to you. And you're just a great follow on, on the social. So I do encourage fans to, to follow you as well. And uh, there you go. Merci. Merci à vous. Yes. And we will do this on the next single as well. There's so much more to talk about. Oh, thanks so much, Mitch. I'm, I'm here for you. Thank you, sir. We'll talk soon. Bye-bye now. Okay. Thanks, Mitch. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You're listening to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFond. Rock Talk.